So we want to just just take you back, Winnie, to you making that decision to go back to Uganda and to die. Where does that sit with you? How do you hold that? How do you navigate that decision? I think I was a bit naive in terms of how that was going to happen. But I think what brought me to that point was physical and mental exhaustion, not seeing a way forward, but also the ongoing stigma around HIV. So it was a combination of all of that. Um, but really, I felt mentally and physically exhausted at that point when I made that decision. And um, I used to wake up and think, no, I don't want to live. My name is Mark Thompson, and I'm a 52-year-old social justice activist, and this is We Were Always Here, a documentary series that explores the UK HIV epidemic through the voices of those who are most affected but are often missing from the mainstream narratives. I spent the last year having conversations with a number of people who you will hear throughout the series. As a black gay man living with HIV since 1986, who has been involved at the forefront of activism, advocacy and prevention, it was important to me that these stories were told. This isn't the definitive history of the UK HIV epidemic, but it's our history, moments from our lives that defined the epidemic for us. In the 80s, it was seeing the news stories and then that horrible tombstone ad campaign. Knowing that there was a virus in the country and that people were dying and that the press were using it to whip up a homophobic storm in the country while the government sat with its thumb up its arse happily doing nothing, watching them all do that so it was welcome, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Or we could even shut the windows. Oh, the windows open? Yeah. Fine. 
I don't mind. I just wanted to let in some air. We could mm -hmm. shut that because there must. Let me. Let me. Random, random noises. Okay. You know that kind. Yeah. It does. My first recollection of HIV was when I was uh, studying in the U.S. in Kansas at university and that was in the early 1980s and little bits of news were coming out about uh, this disease that was attacking uh, a certain group of people. They were falling ill and dying very quickly. But until I finished university, there wasn't really a clear message coming out that this was going to be able to attack everybody. And it was around specific people. And if you avoided certain things, you were going to be okay. So I wasn't very concerned when I was in the US. But I know that uh, in Uganda, where I'm originally from, uh, where that's where my ancestry is. And uh, in my letters, you know, uh, with my parents, with my siblings, they were telling me what was going on, about people dying. But there was also wars going on. So they weren't sure what was happening. Winnie Sasuma is a HIV activist and advocate, working to involve and empower those living with HIV. I was actually seeking to do some uh, work, an internship. So I applied for this internship around health. It was just like health work. And in the US, you were required to take various types of tests if you're going to be working with any kind of patients. And I gladly did this. What I was told at that time was that there were some inconsistencies in my tests. So I had to do various tests again. And uh, so when I did this test again, the HIV test came back positive and I went into shock because this disease, this HIV, wasn't about other people. It was now personal. It was about me. And I really struggled with dealing with that. Throughout the 1980s, HIV became increasingly prevalent across the global media, which in turn fueled panic and ultimately the stigma surrounding it. Because it had a lot of different connotations at that time. Um, there were a lot of things that were being discussed, you know, depending on where you are, depending on whether it was about, um, you know, being a bad person you know, and churches were saying that, whether it was being a prostitute and, and whether that's not a bad thing. But if you are not that, you know, you still don't want to be identified as such. And, you know, it was all about being bad. And that's why you are affected by this. So I took that, some of that home. 
because I would sit in on conversations and people would go, wow, if I knew somebody was HIV positive, I wouldn't let them eat in my house. I wouldn't let them sit close to me. And I was sitting in these conversations with people and they were saying this. It was very, very lonely. It was very, very stressful. Um, I don't even know how to, to express that, but I was incredibly stressed. I started to listen a lot to, you know, what was going on about HIV and, and all sorts. And at that point, I decided not to tell anyone. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. Fear is a tool that is often used in interventions around healthcare. The HIV epidemic was no different and perhaps the most hard-hitting of all. In 1986, the British government set up a cabinet committee devoted to combating what was rapidly becoming an epidemic. £20 million was earmarked for a publicity campaign. £5 million was to be spent on television commercials which would be adapted for cinema. It's the thing that everyone remembers because it was one of the biggest media spends the government had ever made, if not the biggest. Headed by Norman Fowler, the Department of Health and Social Security launched an AIDS education campaign that would define the era. It was called Don't Aid AIDS, but has often been recollected as the Don't Die of Ignorance campaign or the Tombstone campaign. The Tombstone, the Don't Die of Ignorance campaign, I first became aware of it and seeing the advert in a cinema in the Odeon Leicester Square in London. And I remember being with some friends and it's this big, booming, scary advert that comes out. And just remember being absolutely shook to my core watching this and sitting in this cinema filled with a thousand people and feeling the advert was directly about me because it was this thing to be aware of and to be scared of. And my friends that I was with didn't know about my status. So it was just, it literally was like a sledgehammer. But that's the way that we did public health campaigns then. So it fits in the cultural landscape of the time. If we look at seatbelt adverts, drink driving adverts, you know, children playing on railway lines. I remember some of the public information films I saw when I was a kid growing up that you would never show now to children. It was terrifying it was about death it was about inevitability there was no escaping it 
There were two elements which stick in our minds, even today. The Don't Die of Ignorance leaflets that were sent to every household across the UK and the ominous TV advert that featured iconic nightmarish imagery including a cliff face exploding in slow motion and the words AIDS chiselled into the polished surface of a granite headstone. A Don't Die of Ignorance leaflet drops onto the surface along with a bouquet of white lilies. Then there was a commentary read by the actor John Hurt. There is now a danger that is a threat to us all. It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. The AIDS virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. Anyone can get it. Man or woman. So far it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading. So protect yourself and read this leaflet when it arrives. If you ignore AIDS, if you ignore it, could AIDS it could be the death so of you. Of so don't die of ignorance. AIDS don't die of ignorance. It's iconic in the sense of it stands for lots and lots of things. So it has an equivalent in Australia, which is the Grim Reaper going temping bowling and the temping bowling pins switching between being pins and being people and getting knocked down by the ball. We're being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. There was nothing of hope, leadership, light, love, care, compassion. Nothing. Alongside the stark imagery and threatening voiceover, there was also the music. Dr. Ford Hickson is a senior researcher with Sigma Research and an associate professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He also has a degree in opera studies and would tell me that the music was in fact a Gregorian chant. So it's part of the Latin Mass for the Dead. It's the Dies Irae, Day of Wrath. It's in a bit of Latin text that has uh, a sequence of standardised notes for, for people who are chanting it to remember it. Uh, and it's the notes that are being uh, are ringing out on the tubular bells when the, the guy is chiselling out the word AIDS into this big tombstone. It, you don't hear the words, it's just the tune. If you were Catholic and you were observant Catholic, you may well have recognised it. The chant is considered a masterpiece of Latin poetry. The words are translated as Death and nature will stand aghast when the creature shall rise again to answer before his judge I groan as one guilty while my countenance blushes for my fault O spare thy supplicant, O God my prayers are not worthy but thou who art good granting thy kindness that I may not burn in the everlasting fire. They encapsulated the moment of judgment right after someone's death. 
The moment when people should reflect on how they acted during their life. The message was that people should resist all temptations and do only good, because when they die, they get judged by their deeds. If you did good, you go to heaven with God. If you did bad, you go straight to hell with all the demons. You should ask God for his forgiveness, because all people have sins that need to be forgiven, especially the gays. And I was just blown away. It absolutely blew my head off. Learning that the, the, the national public education film about the disease had included a hidden acknowledgement that indeed it was the wrath of God made me want to puke. Pub not just fringe figures, public figures were expressing the belief that HIV was a divine judgment on people. It made me so upset and so dumbfounded and kind of confirmed everything I think was fucked up about this country in the 1980s and the powers that were running it, and possibly still are. Many of the advertisers and politicians who created it have often painted the advert as a brave, controversial intervention and generally successful. When questioned, Norman Fowler defended the advert, stating it was life and death situation and that there was no time to think about whether it might offend one or two people as hospital wards were full of young men dying. The advertising campaign was made by the agency TBWA. One of the designers was Malcolm Gaskin. So can you just tell me, I mean, can we dive in? Can I ask how you came to the decision around the tombstones? How, how did you come to that, to that choice? Because I've got an art background. You know, the difference between American advertising and British advertising, we have a European influence from stained glass windows and objects and things. Yeah? So objects have meanings, yeah? As opposed to Americans, when they're trying to get everybody from all around the world with different languages, speak American, everything was very, they're, they're very good at slogans, yeah? What I needed to do, first of all, this is all about death. It's not about life. This is about death, yeah? It's a death message. So one or two people, companies used Grim Reaper, you know, like uh, House of Horror stuff. And I knew I wanted, it's really like spelling it out, yeah? Literally spelling out death. This, this is spelling out death. When we made the ad, it was all going to be about scale and bigness and authority, yeah? And this is the only authority you need to listen to, yeah? Don't listen to any your mates saying things. It'd be a simple message. And that's why we did, did the tombstone stuff. But, you know, I, at the time, I had a couple of friends died in the first wave. Uh, and I'd go to places where newly diagnosed people were there. And as you know, at the time, you, you know, they just wanted people that got AIDS to go away and disappear out of life and not to talk about it. But that's why I went, went on the bigger stuff to make sure that people know it's all around you. You know, it's, you, you can't tell. It could be everywhere, yeah. And we've got no medicine for it. We've got no surgery for it. We've got no nothing. All we've got is knowledge. So we tell enough people this is what's happening and what you can do about it or avoid it or not. A friend of mine did a, a kind of a whole paper about the adverts, the, the TV and the cinema adverts. And one of the things he found out was about the music that you chose in it. And I understand it comes from um, a Latin death march. Yeah, and, and, and a bit of uh, a bit of Wagner-y kind of stuff like that, yeah. That's what, that was the brief, and he came up with it, yeah. 
originally we had it was a lot more heavy. We had all these sirens built all over this bleak landscape with all this blaring noise klaxons going on. And that was shown to Margaret Thatcher on the train at about two in the morning. Somewhere in Lincolnshire, the train was stopped and cars came with a film and showed her on, on the train what she thought about. She said, that's, that's very good, but get rid of the sirens. That'll scare everybody, yeah? It was a sledgehammer to crack a nut. It was important at the time. You know, the conversation needed to be kick-started. The general public needed to know about this, this virus, this epidemic, which was taking hold in certain communities. I don't think we would ever do something like that again in the same way because it wasn't nuanced. It didn't speak around the populations are at risk. It didn't tell you how to avoid HIV. It didn't tell you how to reduce your risk. It didn't tell you how to, you know, address stigma or to be kind. And I think then we saw that reflected in our support services, which is why some hospitals were not looking after AIDS patients properly. People were being chucked out of their homes on a regular basis or experiencing physical and emotional violence from friends, family, you know, a whole range of different places so you know I knew this was going on for me but I didn't know there was anywhere I could turn to or talk to that would be sympathetic and understanding you've got this environment which is really really dangerous and really stigmatizing um what I observed uh, during that time was that first of all people were terrified in the African communities People were terrified of, of being found to be HIV positive. Then they would be, have to be confronted by the media, you know, and whatever. And they just didn't want to be torn apart because they had families and whatever. The press, the printed press in, this, in the UK was brutal and nasty. You know, it was always about um, their coming here in the UK to infect, you know, uh, UK people. Oh my God, it was, it was horrendous. It was horrendous. And so people were scared. People were dying. People were dying in their homes. People were dying in hospitals. And most of what was happening in the community is that um, people didn't want to come out. So there were very few people speaking up. You know, we mustn't forget that England at that time was, a sm I kind of picture it as a smoke-filled, dark and grey, you know, three channels, really backwards, black and white country, you know, and that kind of bled out into the way that we reacted to things like the epidemic, which made us ripe for how we responded to it. But it also made it ripe for the reaction from the community to respond as well. You know, there's a really strong activism thread here and queer activism here as well, which definitely helped to move this forward. The communities that were affected themselves had to come together to create. As, as black communities, we felt, you know, we felt for a long time that we don't belong. Mm. You know, even if we are here, we don't belong because we are always like, 
pushed to the sidelines in, in visible and invisible ways. So you have to stick together. In the next episode of We Were Always Here, we look to the community. You know, walking into that room and seeing those women, it's almost like, um, I can't quite describe the feeling, but the relief, the relief was immense, completely. It was just something else. But what I remember is being in those spaces like the landmark, and whilst they weren't filled with hope, there was a real sense of if not surviving, then we would get through this together. The production assistant was Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>